Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Wherever you are in the world, we truly have a global audience that joins us. And uh, whether you're in your house or, you know, on the road someplace or under a tree or joining us at one of our venues, I am so glad that you're here. We're in this series called Creed. We're talking about our beliefs, how important it is to know what you believe and believe what you know especially when those beliefs come under attack like we're experiencing these days. So we started out by talking about our belief in the God of the Bible called the doctrine of God. And then we talked a little bit about our belief in Jesus as the only means of salvation from our sin, the doctrine of salvation. Now today we're going to talk about a doctrine that at first is going to feel a little bit confusing. It's actually a bit of a conundrum. I think you'll see what I mean, but before we do that, I'm going to ask you a question. How well do you know yourself? You know, there are all kinds of tools and assessments that you can take to find out what your temperament is, what your strengths are, what your personality type is. Maybe you've taken some of those. I know I have. It's always kind of funny to me how they come up with names or ways for you to think about the results of your test. So, you know, maybe you took a temperament uh, tool and found out that uh, maybe you're a lion or a beaver or a golden retriever, or maybe you did Myers-Briggs or ENFP or some other combination, maybe just strengths finders and you're a maximizer, or maybe you have high woo, so you just have an ability to gather people around you, or maybe you did the disc profile, you're a high I or you're a high D. But if you really want to know who you are, the best way for us to know ourselves is to simply go to the Creator's Manual to go to God's Word. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with what I'll call a very elevated view of what it means to be human. Psalm 8, written by King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He starts out Psalm 8 with a really interesting question. Here it is. It's like he's asking God, what are mere mortals? I like that idea. There's a lot of humility there, right, compared to God. What are mere mortals that you, that means God, should think about them? Why are you even conscious of us, God? Human beings that you should care for them. I mean, David knew himself. We all know ourselves. It's amazing that God, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, holy, we want to think about us. And then David responds to the question he asks with these words. He says in Psalm 8, these words, yet you made them humanity. Or is he talking about Adam and Eve? Some scholars think that this is talking about Adam and Eve prior to their rebellion in the garden. Yet you made them only a little lower than God. That's this word Elohim, which can be used for any, you know, elevated being, so to speak. Only God is capital E Elohim, but his Spiritual creation are considered Elohim. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. So some scholars say that, you know, the words that are being used here make it sound as though God even has us, or at least had Adam and Eve in a position where they were greater than the other Elohim, small e's, these 
spiritual beings, the heavenly beings that God had created. And so some scholars, some Jewish scholars say, you know, that's why Lucifer and the angels rebelled. They became jealous of the status that God gave those human beings who were not Elohim. We'll let the scholars debate all of that. My point is that God looks at humans and he has a very special love for us. We're very unique to him. Maybe that reminds you of Genesis chapter 1. Remember what was said there? It's very similar to Psalm 8. In fact, when David wrote Psalm 8, certainly the words of Genesis chapter 1 were in mind. Remember what it said there? Then God said, let us make human beings in our... And we're going to focus for a little while on this word image. To be like us, they will raid over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals, animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own, there we go again, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what's this image all about? And by the way, we've talked about that before if you've been listening for a while. Well, Dr. Michael Heiser, who's a scholar in the ancient languages in the Old Testament, says that when God says that he created us in his image, that the word image there is not necessarily a status or a function. It's not our ability to think or to have feelings or to make choices. He says what it means is to be imagers, to be created in the image of God is then to image God. It is to be a reflector of God. It is to be in this special relationship where we can so know God that we can actually reflect God out to the creation, which is pretty unique, isn't it? Pretty special. Tim Keller likens it to being like a pond or a lake where you have trees on the banks, and on a beautiful day, those trees are being reflected in the water. It's like you can see the sky in the water. If you bend over and look, you see yourself in the water. In that sense, we have been made to reflect God out. So it kind of helps us at least conceptually get an idea of what this means. It's a very special, it's a very unique relationship that God has given to us, and it's very elevated in its view. But not everybody believes that. There are some people that insist that uh, we're not created in the image of God at all, that there is no God. So let's talk a little bit about how secularists view this, how the world around us tends to see these things if they don't believe in the God of the Bible. What they believe is that you and I are born here and then we die and then we are done. There's no personal God out there from which we get our value or our worth or our sense of image. To them, therefore, it is all about self-esteem. In other words, emphasis on self, you've got to give yourself your own image. You have to assign yourself your own worth and your own value and your own prominence. It has to come out of you. And therefore, we live in a world that's constantly battling our self-esteem, and we need to silence those voices, especially those voices of 
Christians, Orthodox Christians, who want to insist all the time that as much as there is some goodness in us, there at the core of us is badness, there's sin, there's evil. Hey, don't call me evil. Don't point out the sin in my life. I'm just trying to make it through life. I want you to affirm me. I want you to look at me and value me however I value myself. And what these secularists tell us is that the problem in our world today is the fact that so many people have low self-esteem. And so we need to do everything we can to build that esteem up. Nobody should be putting anybody else down. Now, it sounds really good. There's actually a huge problem here. Because if you take what secularists teach and say, evolutionists, that we are just here today and gone tomorrow, we live, then we die, and that's the end of, uh, of us, you look at their view of philosophy and science, then philosophy and science, apart from God, simply tells us that we are nothing more than biological beings and all of our feelings and all of our emotions and all of the love and dreams and hopes we have are really nothing more than hormones and chemistry and atoms and molecules. You honestly have no more worth than a rock on the road or a weed in the field. If you take it seriously, you really follow a materialist view or a secular view. That's what you, that's what you end up with. And so you have this massive hypocrisy. And hypocrisy goes something like this. All lives have value. Every life matters. But then the hypocrisy is, we'll take life from the womb. The hypocrisy is, we'll decide that you may be human, but you're not really a person. You're not viable. You're not really contributing to society anymore. And that leads then to well, infanticide, euthanasia, and all the things that happen. And so it's so very inconsistent, as you can see. Only the Bible, only God's Word really gives us the most elevated high view of what it means to be a human, a person. Now, I want you to think about the implications of that because they're huge. The implications of what we've just said are grand. I mean, if honestly you are created in the image of God, I have no right to judge you. I have no right to put you down. There cannot be caste systems. There can't be classes. There can't be racism. There can't be, you know, some people are better and some people are worse. That can't exist. If you take the atheistic view, however, there's room for all of that. And the atheists understand that. I mean, Bertrand Russell, who is a British atheist, once said this. He said, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. There's no purpose to your life. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. put it this way. I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Not very flattering. You see, here's my point. I mean, secularists who want to be all about how life matters, if you take their point of view honestly, they even admit 
No, we can say that, but the truth is what we believe is really what's fostered all of the hatred and all the evil that we see in our world today. Because if you look at somebody economically, you can find a reason why they don't contribute to society anymore and get rid of them. If you look at somebody biologically, you can find a reason to say they're no longer viable and let's get rid of them for the sake of the whole. It has been said that morality in the hands of those who do not believe God is nothing more than selfishness and evil. Is that really morality? Good people are capable of the most horrendous things because, in essence, there's evil in our lives, which takes us then to this whole conundrum. I mean, Psalm 8 said, you know, how, how wonderful it is that we've been created in the image of God. But then look what Psalm 14 says. The same pen for the same inspired writer. David says, look, only fools say in their hearts there is no God. Okay. But then look what he says. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. And he's not just talking about the atheists who say there is no God. He goes on and he says, not one of them does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Now let's take a couple of things that David wrote here and think about it a little bit. First of all, he says, um, nobody in the entire human race, not just the atheist, but nobody, he says, seeks God. Now, when I first hear that, I think to myself, that can't be right. I know a lot of people that seek God. You might even consider yourself as one who sought God. We talk about finding God, right? But nobody finds God. I think a lot of us seek God because we want something from God. So we're not really seeking God. What we're wanting is a miracle. What we're wanting is health and wealth and peace and forgiveness to have success, to make the right decisions. Even as believers, I have to ask myself a lot of times, why do I pray? When I spend time with God, what am I really seeking? Nobody seeks God for God's sake, for God himself. Unless you've truly come to know God. So even when we say, I found God, the truth is you were actually looking for something and God found you. John 6, reminds us of this. Jesus said, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me and at the last day I will raise them up. How about that second phrase? No one does good. Nobody does good. I think I know a lot of people that do good who aren't even believers. So is the scripture wrong? Is that a mistake? Or is it really true? There is nobody who does good. Well, let's talk about what, what it means to do good. There are two parts of a good deed, the actual deed and the motive behind it. So for instance, let's say we're driving down the road and I see somebody who's got a flat tire. And I pull over and I change their tire out for them. That's the good deed. But why did I do that? Did I do it so that 
I could go tell everybody what I did and get a pat on the back? Did I do it so I might get a tip from them? Hey, here's 10 bucks. Thanks for helping me out. Did I do it because I felt like if I don't do it, God's going to punish me? Did I do it to earn points with God? Did I do it so I could manipulate the person I just helped to kind of put them in a relationship with me where they kind of owe me now? I mean, that's kind of how we function as human beings. I hate to put it this way, but Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher and theologian, said that in the heart of our goodness is badness. That comes right out of Scripture, by the way. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all sinful. Even in our goodness, it's tainted with badness because self is always present there. And, you know, so much of what we do grows out of fear and pride. Have you ever thought about that? Think about it as a parent. When you tell your kids not to lie, do you tell them why they shouldn't lie? I was told I shouldn't lie because God hates liars. He hates lies. He hates it's sin. It's like, well, I want God to hate me. I want God to be angry at me. So I tried not to lie as a kid because of fear. Some people lie because of evil. <laughs> they lie because it's a way of getting out of being responsible or it's a way of getting out of being caught. So when we sin... When we make our choices, oftentimes it's out of pride or it's out of fear. Or we make choices not to sin because of fear, but then it becomes pride. It's just, it's just this huge conundrum. There is nobody good. I know before World War II, there was kind of this idea out there that, you know, we're not corrupted by a sin nature. We don't really have a sin nature. We're just corrupted by the society that, we live in, and so we've got to change society. And then, and then the Holocaust came. And that just shook up all the social scientists. Because the Holocaust was committed and supported by a lot of good people. But that badness came through. The badness that comes through with so much of the evil we see in our own day today. So how do we overcome this? How do we overcome this Jekyll and Hyde that seems to exist in our life, this potential for such goodness, and yet this badness that we feel, this human nature that we have? Well, the answer is spread throughout the Scriptures. We looked at it last weekend a bit when we talked about the doctrine of salvation. But I want to look at one passage in particular found in the book of Hebrews where this is solved for us. Hebrews chapter 2 quotes from Psalm 8. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6 it says, What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet for a little while you've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. We saw that, right? But obviously, because of what happened in the garden, the authority we have is run amok. And look at our world today. We're not doing a good job of governing God's creation. We're polluting it. We're destroying it. We're destroying each other. There's war. There's violence. There's hatred. There's bigotry. The writer goes on and he says, but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. 
Yeah, just said that, right? But watch what he says next. He goes on, he says, what we do see, though, is this. Jesus, God's son, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. Wow, the son of God. Capital E, Elohim. For a little while, in human form, is, is placed in a position, humanly speaking, a little lower than even the angels. Why did he do that? And because he suffered death for us. Ah, that's why he did it. He had to become us to die for us. He says, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus becomes the perfect human. He becomes what Adam could never be. He becomes what you and I can never be. He lived a perfect, pleasing life to his father. The life I should have lived, he lived. Instead of me, for me, substituted for me. And then he dies this death that I should die, that I don't have to die. I'm not talking about physical death only. I'm talking about spiritual death and separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talked about in our last message on the doctrine of salvation. He does all of that and he receives glory for it. But then look what he does with this glory. And that's why I've got this mirror up here with me for this message I'm sharing with you. You know, uh, a mirror reflects the image that is in front of it. Maybe you can see my image in the mirror. The mirror itself doesn't have an image of its own to project out. That's kind of like you and me. You know, none of us knows ourselves from ourselves. I only know myself because of how I am known by my parents, how I'm known by others. Which reminds me of a quote by Tim Keller. Tim put it this way, he said, you'll never have beauty inside unless you're facing someone else who is giving you the beauty or the glory. When I hear that, I'm reminded that, you know, so oftentimes we look to others for our beauty, for our worth, for our value, our spouse, our kids, our parents, our peers. But the problem is, even the best of them are going to have days when they look back at us and make us feel really ugly about ourselves. As they point out our faults, or they're having a bad day, and they put us down. What does Christ do for us? Listen to what it says here in, 1 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, but whenever someone turns to the Lord. So let's go back to the mirror for a moment, okay? Imagine the mirror is your life and my life. Whenever, the, whenever our lives turn to the Lord, in other words, when I look at Christ, I now have the opportunity to reflect him out, right? If I'm like a mirror, I can only reflect what's looking at me or into me. Go back to the text. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Bible tells us we come to Christ, we're given the Spirit. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. How is it you can see and reflect the glory of the Lord? By looking into him and letting him look into you. You become the image of Christ. You 
now are truly, exponentially imaging God. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So, in other words, from now until the grave, I have the opportunity to reflect more and more and more and more of Christ. Isn't that awesome? But in order for for that to happen, I've got to turn my mirror, I've got to turn my attention and focus on him. Not others, not this world. You know, the church is called the body of Christ. We're supposed to be reflecting Christ together. We've had our eyes way too much on politicians and politics. And we've been reflecting just an awful lot of the ugliness of the world because that's where we've had our eyes. If the world is ever going to see Jesus in his church, then we have to repent. We have to say, God, forgive us for looking at the wrong people at the wrong things. Help us get our eyes focused on you. To see you. And understand this, that everything that happens in your life, good or bad, God wants to use it to turn you to him. To turn your eyes to him. So the song says, look full in his face. In his wonderful grace. And that will be reflected back out. So what we talked about today is called the doctrine of of human nature. And on the one hand, it's kind of ugly, isn't it? When we really take a look at who we are, that Jekyll and Hyde in us. But look what Christ has done for you and me. You have the potential to be all that God wants you to be. If you take your life and take your eyes, the eyes of your spirit, the eyes of your mind, your heart, and just behold him. Because listen to me, while he looks at you, he doesn't see what's wrong with you. He sees his son in you. And he loves you. And you are off the charts worthy and valuable to him. God, thank you so much for what you've done for us. May your beauty become reflected in our hearts and in our lives. Forgive us if we've had our eyes focused on the wrong people, on the wrong things. May our mirror, oh God, the mirror of our life, show the beauty of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next weekend.